So Franklin Delano Roosevelt and his first inaugural address made a statement. Does anybody know what that statement is? It's related to fear. I'll give you a hint. The only thing we have to fear is fear itself, right? Well, not too long ago, I found a, um, a T-shirt, or I saw a T-shirt that actually uses that phrase, but I'll let you read it for yourself. The only thing we have to fear is fear itself and spiders. <laughs> but you could put anything in that blank, right? I mean, it could be spiders, it could be, I mean, you name it. It could be uh, snakes, that's my thing. I don't like snakes. I mean, any number of things. The point being, you can say the only thing we have to fear is fear itself, and I'm not discounting them. That came at a very critical time, the country in the throes of depression, and it was soothing to, to our country. But, but the truth is, we need to be honest. There are things that we're all afraid of. And fear is a very real thing. We've all experienced times in our lives where we have had that emotion of fear, and sometimes in very dramatic, drastic ways, and for very good reason, right? I mean, there are times where we should be afraid. Fear can be a healthy thing. It makes you aware. It heightens your senses. It makes you pay more attention to what's going on and take appropriate measures in response to protect yourself and to protect the people that you love. Now, understanding that we have this emotion and we've all experienced this emotion, we encounter circumstances that may threaten our well-being physically, mentally, emotionally, our health, our family. All of that's true. We accept that as Christians Though, we need to, to uh, all of us, especially as children of God, the, the danger comes when we let fear consume us to the point to where we're ineffective for the kingdom of God. As Christians, we need to understand and come back to, especially in those times of great uncertainty, times of great fear, we come back to the truth that God is fully in control and that whatever it is that we're facing, whatever it is that's causing the fear within us, he's bigger than that. And he knew we were going to face that before we did. And so he knows what we need to be able to endure whatever it is that we're facing that's causing this fear. There's nothing wrong with being afraid. We've all been there. There is something wrong if we allow that to cripple us to the point to where we can't function, to where we can't operate and fulfill the kingdom purpose that God has given us individually or as a church. The good news is we're not alone in dealing with the emotion of fear. I, we could go around the room and each one of us could fill in that. It may be spiders. I don't know. But each one of us could fill in that blank with something that's either causing you fear now or has in the past. We all know the emotion of fear. We've all experienced the emotion of fear. We all have that in common. And we see that this is nothing new. We're going to be in Habakkuk chapter 3 today, and we're going to see that Habakkuk expresses his fear. This message now was addressed initially to a specific group of people in a specific time under a specific set of circumstances, but the principles apply to 
You and I, as 21st century Christians, facing the circumstances that we face in the 21st century, attempting to serve God in the midst of all of the challenges that we face in our culture today. So we can apply this uh, message to us. It's addressed to us as well. We can apply it to our lives, and we want to do that this morning. In Habakkuk chapter 1, you know, he's concerned. Habakkuk is concerned with Israel. He sees, he's troubled by God's apparent inactivity at this particular time. It's what you and I would call unanswered prayer, all right? It seems as if God is silent. Uh, In chapter 2, we see that he is waiting on God's response and that there there is trouble coming. All right, he understands, he gets, he knows that's happening, and he's, he's troubled. He, he's wanting God to intervene. He sees this, this invasion, these woes uh, that are pronounced, and he is concerned. Bottom line, he's afraid, with good reason. And so he expresses this fear. And we see that God gives him an answer, but... The prophet's concerned with the moral dimensions of this answer. <laughs> that there, it's not exactly an answer that makes you, you know, get all the warm fuzzies. You know, there, there's reason to be concerned. So, his concern, we see, turns to fear. But the good news is, Habakkuk's honest about it. So, let's look at Habakkuk chapter 3. We'll begin in verse 2 and read all the way through verse 19 together. A prayer of the prophet Habakkuk, according to Shiganoth. Lord, I have heard the report about you. Lord, I stand in awe of your deeds. Revive your work in in these years. Make it known in these years. In your wrath, remember mercy. Aren't you thankful that even though God is a God of wrath, he's also a God of mercy? God comes from Teman, the Holy One from Mount Paran, Salah. His splendor covers the heavens, and the earth is full of his praise. His brilliance is like light, rays are flashing from his hand. This is where his power is hidden. Plague goes before him, pestilence follows in his steps. He stands and he shakes the earth. He looks and startles the nations. The age-old mountains break apart. The ancient hills sink down. His pathways are ancient. I see the tents of cushion in distress. The tent curtains of the land of Midian tremble. Are you angry at the rivers, Lord? Is your wrath against the rivers? Or is your fury against the sea when you ride on your horses, your victorious chariot? You you took the sheath from your bow. The arrows are ready to be used with an oath. Selah. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains see you and shudder. A downpour of water sweeps by. The deep roars with its voice and lifts its waves high. Sun and moon stand still in their lofty residence. At the flash of your flying arrows, at the brightness of your shining spear, you march across the earth with indignation and you trample down the nations in wrath. You come out to save your people, to save your anointed, a message of hope. You crush the leader of the house of the wicked and strip him from foot to neck, Selah. You pierce his head with his own spears. His warriors storm out to scatter us, gloating as if ready to secretly devour the weak. You tread the sea with your horses, stirring up the vast water 
I heard and I trembled within. This, this, he's, he's just being honest. Hey, this scares me. I heard and I trembled within. My lips quivered at the sound. Rottenness entered my bones. I trembled where I stood. Now I must quietly wait for the day of distress to come against the people invading us. Though the fig tree does not bud and there is no fruit on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though the flocks disappear from the pen and there are no herds in the stalls, don't miss this. Yet I will celebrate in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like those of a deer and enables me to walk on mountain heights. He enables me for the choir director and stringed instruments for all of us, right? Yet I will wait. I will celebrate in the Lord. Now, Habakkuk's pretty open and honest here. I mean, he's, he's pretty straightforward about how he feels about this situation, And we're going to look this morning from Habakkuk, his example, and hopefully learn how to deal with whatever we fill in the blank with that defines, that labels, that names our fear as followers of Christ. So what do we do when we're faced with something that's frightening, something that's concerning, something that we don't know how to solve, a problem, an issue, a crisis, or even something really great and really big that happens and we don't know how to handle it, that brings with it a set of fears on its own, of its own. What do we do? How do we respond? Well, when we are afraid, whatever the source is, we first need to be honest with God about our fear. You know, Habakkuk, one of the things I love about this is is that Habakkuk is completely honest with God about how he feels. Verse Two, again, in the New American Standard, Lord, I have heard the report about you, and I fear. <laughs> I am afraid. He's honest. We see it again in verse 16. I heard and I trembled within. My lips quivered at the sound. Rottenness entered my bones. I trembled where I stood. He was shaking in his boots, literally. Now I must quietly wait for the day of distress to come against the people invading us. He was afraid. We all have things we're afraid of. I've, I've told you there, you know, I'm not a big fan of snakes. You know, I handle spiders, actually. That's just a T-shirt I saw. I, those don't bother me so bad. But, but snakes, that's a different story. And when I was a kid, and if I'm honest, probably a little bit now, too, as a 45-year-old man, I was afraid of the dark. I was absolutely terrified of the dark when I was a kid. I hated the dark. I slept with a light on the whole nine yards. I hated it. One of my jobs growing up was taking out the trash, and I remember the first house that I lived in, uh, we moved when I was about 12 years old, but I started taking the trash out pretty young, and I remember uh, the trash, I would have to take it out to the shed that was in the backyard of our house that was all the way, it seemed like three football fields to me at the time, but it was probably only about from here to the the middle of the uh, the worship center here, but I had to take the trash to the shed, and I was terrified. I, I didn't, I didn't, I necessarily like taking out the trash, but it wasn't so much doing the job. It was walking across that dark yard and, and being afraid. And I mean, I was just terrified. And so typically what I would do is I would run as fast as I could, you know, open the door, sling it in, and then run back. But, I, you know, that was a very real fear. You know, and it's amazing how fears evolve as you get older, but it's still the same feeling. It's a feeling of helplessness. It's a feeling of what what may or may not be out there, what may or may not happen. 
It's a feeling of, of apprehension over the unknown. And the reality is we can have some negative responses to fear. It's okay to be afraid and to recognize that and be honest about it, but we need to know how to respond to it. And in order to know how to respond to it, I want to look at some negative responses to fear. You know, some people are faced with fear, experience fear, and they just surrender. They give up. There's nothing I can do about it, right? They see something that's, that's scary, something that's overwhelming, and they just say, if this is going to happen to me, I guess there's nothing I can do about it. You know, everybody suffers, everybody dies, so I just give up. I give in. Well, here's the problem with that response. And, and listen, I can understand that response, especially if it's something that's, that's huge, that it, like Habakkuk is facing, that is absolutely worthy of being afraid of. But the problem with this is that Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, what? I have overcome the world. So he's telling us, you're going to have things that you're afraid of. You're going to have things that are difficult to work through, that that are overwhelming, that you cannot overcome. But take heart. I can. I've already overcome the world. I have power that you do not have. And, and, And we need to look at the life of Jesus in many ways, draw the example, draw on that example And one of the things we need to look at when facing difficult times is that no one's faced more difficult circumstances than Christ did. Can we all agree on that? Those of us who believe in Christ and know the story of of salvation, the crucifixion, the punishment, the, the torture, the suffering, not just physically, but taking on our sin, taking on the wrath of God on our behalf. Can we all look at that situation and agree that no one's ever faced anything like that before or ever will since? Can we agree on that? Jesus faced all of that. And he was fully human. He was God, but fully human. He faced that, and he did not give up. If anybody had the right to give up, had a reason to give up, it was him. So we can face our fear, and we can give up. Or we can believe the promise, the assurance, the truth. Jesus says, I've I've got this. I've, I've overcome the world, and I have the strength. I've been through much worse myself. I can empathize and I can give you the strength that you need. So that's one negative response. I don't recommend it, but I understand the temptation. Another is detachment. Just, hey, you know what? I don't want to think about these things. I just don't even want to think about it. I want to deal with it. Every time I think about it, I get depressed. I'm shaking in my boots just like a backer. So I just don't want to think about it. I'm just going to, you know, I don't want to think about my future When I think about the future of our country, I get depressed. When I think about my family and what could happen, I get depressed. I get scared. Stock market depresses me. International news depresses me. Politics depress me. So the the, the best solution is just not to think about it at all, right? That's just... Now, I'm not very successful at that, but some people have the ability to just, hey, pushing it out of my mind, I'm not thinking about it anymore. Here's the problem with that. This view refuses to face reality, and the reality is, whether we like it or not, reality is still reality. (laughs) Just because I choose not to think about it doesn't mean it's going to go away. You know, I may have this problem over here, and I've got to deal with this problem, and I know it's going to get ugly, and I know it's going to be difficult. I can ignore it, 
I'm just not going to think about it, but that problem is not only going to stay there, that problem is going to get bigger and bigger and bigger until I'm forced to deal with it, right? And so just simply ignoring my fears is not going to be a solution. Detachment's not going to work. Another response is bravado. You know, people face their fears and they may say, pull yourselves together, you know, pull yourselves up by the bootstraps, keep your chin up, face these fears. Don't let the future depress you. Don't let anything get you down. And on the surface, that sounds really good. And there is a place and a time for that. But here's the danger. Here's the problem with this. When we try to overcome fear with just courage, just courage, we're relying on our own strength and not the strength of God. Jesus said, I have overcome the world. Not if you, you know, keep your chin up, everything will be okay. You know, he's saying you're going to have trouble, but... I have overcome the world, which means you've got to depend on me. I mean, I'm the one that will give you strength. So, yes, there's a place for courage, and there are times where we've got, there's a part to play. Listen, we got to get out of bed in the morning. we got to put one foot in front of the other, and we got to, to take steps toward moving through the day. But we do it, if we're going to be successful, we have to do it in his power and his strength, not our own. We can't just, you know, force our way through it. We can't just rely on our own strength. It's important here to emphasize that in those moments where we don't feel like whatever negative response we're tempted to have, we need to remember that knowledge and faith are vitally important because there are going to be times where it doesn't feel like there's a way out. There are going to be times where the obstacles are just too great. There are going to be times where my emotions are going to fail me. And so that's when I have to draw back on what I know about who God is and what his word tells me. And if we don't have that knowledge, we won't have faith that it takes to get through it. There was a story in, in the news a few years back that uh, about a, a Captain Matthew Potts. He was um, commander for the headquarters of company uh, and, and headquarters company, 192nd Infantry Brigade in Fort Benning, Georgia. And he was on his way uh, uh, to the, the fort one day uh, to report. And he had 20 years plus experience in the military police. He had all this combat training, all this emergency training. And he's driving down the road one day and he sees this car in the center, it was one of those medians, those concrete barriers in the center median. He sees this car just, you know, skirting on this median. I mean, just, I mean, and it was obvious that whoever was in the driver's seat did not have control. I mean, just, you know, like a, a pinball, you know, bouncing off this, this concrete barrier. So he gets up close and he looks and he realizes that whoever's in the, the driver's seat has, is not conscious. Their hands aren't on the steering wheel. The airbags are deployed because they've hit that barrier so many times. I mean, it, just, it was obvious they were not conscious. And so his training immediately kicks in. And he gets in front of the car and he uses some maneuver that I can't remember the name of that some of you probably know to get in front of the car, a braking technique to slow down the car and get the car stopped. They were, the car was moving pretty good, pretty good speed. And he talked about it afterwards. And he says, in those moments, here's how he described it. He said, all of your senses come alive during those times. And during the handling of a complex situation, you go into this cognitive zone between you as a thinking entity and how you act when the training takes over. That's the goal that we need to have, spiritually speaking. Okay? 
We need to be so in tune to God, so in tune to the Holy Spirit, so knowledgeable of His Word, so equipped by the power of the Holy Spirit that when we are faced with those situations that are overwhelming, that produce that immense fear, that we move into this state where we are going back to our training. Our training takes over. The Holy Spirit takes over. And the knowledge of who God is is so rich and full in our minds that we automatically fall back to, okay, I know this situation is overwhelming. I can't do this, but I know that God can. And the truth of God's word speaks to this situation in this way. The power of the Holy Spirit takes over and equips me. That, that's what we draw on. Because there are times when faith and human reason are at odds, Right? And so we have to go back to what we know, whether the situation speaks in support of that knowledge or not. We go back to what we know, and we go back to being equipped by the Holy Spirit. This is what Habakkuk did. I mean, that's what it took, the path that he takes to overcome his fears. You know, this, this coming invasion that he reveals to him in chapter 2, Habakkuk drew on this knowledge, and that's what he used. The knowledge of God, specifically of God's power, which brings us to our next few verses. And so when we're afraid, we need to be reminded of the power of God. Habakkuk gives us a pretty good history lesson here. He knew God. He knew of God's mighty acts throughout history. And and what we see in these next few verses are a laundry list of, of the many ways that God had displayed his power in defense of the Jewish people when he led them out of Egypt through the wilderness and into the promised land. So let's break it down. He looks back, Habakkuk does, on the great deliverance. Verse 3, God comes from Teman, the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. His splendor covers the heavens and the earth is full of praise. Habakkuk is saying that God came out of Sinai where he met with Moses in order to deliver his people from Egypt. He's drawing back on that. That knowledge. He's doing what I just described to you. He's drawing on what he knows. He also talks about God's presence. Verse 4. His brilliance is like light. Rays are flashing from his hand. This is where his power is hidden. Now this is probably referring to the Shekinah glory of God. God's presence with his people. How he manifested his presence with his people. And then he remembers God's power. Verses 5 through 7. Plague goes before him and pestilence follows in his steps. He stands and he shakes the earth. He looks and startles the nations. The age-old mountains break apart. The ancient hills sink down. His pathways are ancient. I see the tents of cushion in distress. The tent curtains of the land of Midian tremble. The plagues of Egypt. This is talking about the plagues of Egypt. The conquest of the land of Canaan. He's drawing on all that. God's faithfulness to provide and protect And to fight on behalf of his people. He remembers God's power. Then verse 11. Sun and moon stand still in their lofty residence. At the flash of your flying arrows. At the brightness of your shining spear. This reference is probably from Joshua chapter 10. Most likely. The Jewish armies had fallen on the forces of the Amorite kings. Before the walls of Gibeon. and, And had routed them. And the Amorites as they fled. The Lord struck Many of the soldiers with large hailstone. And Joshua prays. In that moment, he prays for the sun and moon to stand still while he and the army pursue them and completely destroy the Amorite armies. And this is the Lord's answer to that prayer. 
He says, surely the Lord, Joshua says, the Lord answered. He did what he asked. And Joshua says, surely the Lord was fighting for Israel that day. So God will fight his people's battles. Yeah, this invasion's coming, all these difficult circumstances. But, but Habakkuk is remembering, hey, God has a history of fighting for his people. If we'll be faithful, God will fight for us. And he's taking comfort, Habakkuk is, in the examples of God's gracious protection. Look at verse 8 of Habakkuk 3. Are you angry at the rivers, Lord? Is your wrath against the rivers? Or is your fury against the sea when you ride on your horses, your victorious chariot? The parting of the Red Sea and the Jordan later on. I mean, that he's, he's reminding himself. He's just, he's just rehearsing this. I mean, we get the benefit of it, right? But he's going through this himself. He's thinking about all the times in past where God's people faced incredible obstacles, death. No way out, and God provided a way. God overcame. He fought for them. He provided for them. And this is the first issue that as every believer, every Christian, we, we've got to settle this, this question. Is, is this true or is it not? Is God's word true or is it not? I mean, is Christianity real? Is God who he says he is or is it not? I mean, that's the issue. And, and if, if you are making a decision to follow Christ, we, we have to answer that. If you're a believer and making a decision about, you know, whether or not to trust God and move forward and, and, and say yes to whatever he's calling you to do, then you have to answer that question. But the good news is, is that it's not a blind faith that we're called to. We talked a good bit about this back in the summer, about all of the evidence that supports. I mean, yes, there are elements of our faith where we have to take that step and we don't know exactly where our foot's going to land. We have to trust God to catch us. And there are times where we have to make those calls, many times. But, but the, the call to take that step, one of the reasons we can take that is because there is unknown, but there is so much that is known. I mean, we have so much knowledge of who he is and so much support that, that backs up that, that this really is true. That what we believe is fact, it's not fiction. I mean, you know, the, the proof of creation. You know, just looking around and how creation declares the glory of God. I mean, we, we see the design that exists. It, it, it takes a whole lot more faith to believe that it all just happened by chance than to believe there was an intent and a design and a God who created it all. And so we have... We have that, we have prophecies, and we talked a little bit about this a few months ago, but just, just maybe as a refresher and maybe uh, to talk a little bit more about it, this, just the birth of Jesus, his miracles alone, these prophecies were written over 400 years before they occurred, and then they were witnessed by many, and we have the account of that, the account of those nations, prophecies that predicted God's destruction of nations. I mean, the book of Jonah records a case where... The Assyrians stopped doing what was evil as a result of God's short prophecy through Jonah. And this is what God wanted. He didn't punish them as a result of their change of heart. But most often, people would jeer at the prophets. They would not believe them. They would refuse to believe them and do the exact opposite of what, or continue in disobedience at least. And what would happen, what resulted is what the prophets predicted, that's exactly what happened. And we have those records too. We have those stories. The prophecies recorded in the Bible came true in such a detailed way that they could 
not have been predicted by chance. Now, you may say, well, the Bible says that, but we don't know for sure that that really happened. No, there's archaeological proof. There's evidence that these prophecies were written down years before they happened, and they happened exactly as they were written. You know, there's the belief that, that maybe later on somebody came back and edited all of those and made it match the story, but, but the, the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, for one, refuted all of that, the dating. No, it, it was described years before it happened. That's not just chance that those prophecies came true. I mean, just the prophecies fulfilled in the life and ministry, the death and resurrection of Jesus alone, is evidence that what we see is is reality. Textual evidence. The New Testament alone, over 20,000 known manuscripts document the New Testament text. It makes the New Testament, that makes the New Testament the most reliable document of antiquity, a document that was before the printing press. The earliest New Testament manuscripts date from the 2nd century A.D., These manuscript copies were written in different languages by different people of different nationalities, yet they all agree. They all complement one another. In spite of all those differences, the New Testament texts all agree with one another. You tell me the chances of that. The proof of the people living in that time. Christians were strongly persecuted, right? The Roman government wanted to snuff out Christianity before it ever stopped. And so they tried to find evidence to refute what was being taught. The most powerful government in the world was trying to refute Christianity. Don't you think if there were evidence to refute it, they would have found it and made it public? They had the power to do that, yet they couldn't. Why? Because it was true. What they were saying, the events that happened... There were just too many witnesses. There, were too many, too much, there was too much evidence to support it, to back it up. The New Testament, before they were all assembled into one book that we call the New Testament, it circulated during the lifetime of thousands of people who had actually seen Jesus' miracles and other historic events, and no one ever refuted the writings as fairy tales. Why? Because they were true. They couldn't provide evidence to support that theory at the very least. Then historians, secular history supports the Bible. The writings of Flavius Josephus, the antiquities of the Jews, the writings of Cornelius Tacitus in 115 AD. So there's historical, there's eyewitness, there's textual evidence, there's the prophecies. I mean, there's so much that supports what we believe, what's stated in Scripture. Christianity is fact. The Bible is fact. Yeah, there's plenty in here I don't understand, but it's still fact. It is whole. It is true. It is inerrant. We have every reason to believe the promises of God to his people because everything in this book is true and all that it says. Think about the implication here. Since all these things are true, That means, based on what we know in Scripture, what we know about God, we have a great God that we can depend on to do great things. There's a lot wrapped up in that. But we have a great God that we can depend on to do great things. I mean, it's in in the book. His Word tells us that it's true. We can depend on Him to protect us. We can depend on Him to keep His promises. We can depend on Him to provide for us. And we can rejoice even in the worst of times just like Habakkuk did. 
even when we're faced with obstacles that, that, that are insurmountable, seem to be that way. What else did he do? What else does Habakkuk do here? Well, he thought about God's faithfulness. So when you're afraid, think about God's faithfulness. Think about God's faithfulness. Verse 13. You come out to save your people, to save your anointed. You crush the leader of the house of the wicked and strip him from foot to neck. So he's thinking about, you know, we think about in those moments of fear, we need to think about God's past acts of faithfulness, right? I mean, you know, Habakkuk has rehearsed many of the past acts of God in protection and, and for his people, in preservation of his people. He's able to save, history shows, that God is able and willing to save those who look to him in faith. But he has also promised to save his people in the future. You know, so there's the past acts that we see that we can draw on, but anybody that turns to him in faith, he'll save. Salvation. And then he'll preserve us from now through eternity. He'll, he'll take care of us. We need to remind ourselves of some of the promises of God, maybe. You know, you know, let's do what Habakkuk did. Let's just kind of walk through some of the promises that we have. For one thing, he's promised his provision. How many warriors do we have in the, in the room today? I'm raising my hand. I've been completely transparent about my worrying. It's, it's a process, right? I, I'm a worrier. Um, but I've gotten better as, as time has gone on. But we have a promise in Matthew chapter 6. Therefore, I tell you, Jesus says, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or, whatever, or, or about your body, what you will wear. It's not, is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Verse 27, who of you by worrying can add a single hour to his life? I know that's true, but I still, you know. Yeah, I'm arguing the scripture right now. But I still, it's still true, I believe it. I still. I, and why do you worry about your clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor, splendor was dressed like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you? Oh, you of little faith. So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first, and that's the key, we got to seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, and then all these things will be added to you. If we're seeking God's kingdom, um, and that's, that's really the, 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 the key here is, you know, in order to combat worry, we present our request to God, we accept the peace that he gives us, but we got to be seeking his will and seeking his kingdom. we got to be busy obeying and doing what he's called us to do. Because when we're doing that, everything else just kind of falls. We get perspective. And we learn that God provides through the process. And we also need to remember that God has promised a place for us. So he's promised us peace, provision, but he's promised a place for us too. John 14, 1 through 4, don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me, Jesus says. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? If I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself so that where I am, you will also be. You know the way where I'm going. 
How do we know the way? We know the way because we know Jesus. He is the way. And if you have a relationship with Christ, here's the promise wrapped up in this. that If you have a relationship with Christ, not even death can harm you from an eternal perspective. And there's nothing more scary than that. And that's, that's the ultimate fear, right? But, but death doesn't have any, even have power over us. He's promised us peace. You know, how many of you in your busy, hectic, challenge-filled lives need peace? You can raise your hand for that, too, if you need peace in your crazy, busy, hectic lives. You know, those moments of peace seem to be few and far between sometimes, don't they? But God says this, John 14, verse 25. Jesus says, I'm telling you these things now while I'm still with you. But when the Father sends the Advocate as my representative, that is the Holy Spirit, he will teach you everything and will remind you of everything that I've told you. I'm leaving you with a gift, peace of mind and peace of heart. And the peace I give is a gift that the world cannot give. It's peace that passes all human comprehension, Paul tells us. So don't be troubled or afraid. You want to combat fear of the peace of God. We need peace. Peace with God and then the peace of God to overwhelm us and to take hold, to take control. And the greatest of all for this life, maybe, is the promise of his presence that he gives us. Matthew 28, the Great Commission, 18 through 20. Jesus came near and said to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything that I've commanded you. And remember, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. You know, I, I talked to you about my fear of the dark, right? Taking the garbage out as a kid, small child, I was terrified. But I found a, I found a solution. It was my job. It was my responsibility. It was, I had to do it. So my dad wasn't going to do it for me, but here's what he did. He knew I was afraid of the dark, so he would come to the back door, and he would stand and watch me every step of the way. He was there with me, and, you know, very little chance that whatever monsters I had in my head were real, but if anything did try to get me, he was there. I was still scared. I probably still ran to the shed and back, he could tell you, I'm sure, but I knew that dad was there, and I knew, hey, listen, you know, I, I may have to outrun it for a minute, but dad's right behind me. He's, he's right there. Not only is God standing at a distance and, and I know my dad would have, just like with my kids, he would have done anything that he had to do to protect me in that situation and in all situations. But it, it's not just that God is standing at a distance watching you. The Holy Spirit lives within us. He's here. He's with us, regardless of what we face. It doesn't mean you're not going to be scared. I was still scared. I ran all the way to that shed and back. I was scared. But I knew. I knew his presence. I knew he was there. And there are going to be times where we're afraid, but God is with us. And the comfort of his presence, God has promised his presence. He will never, he says, I will never leave you or forsake you. Habakkuk knew that God was with him. He was honest about his fear. And he believed in the power of God, and he knew that God was faithful. All of this together, he's, he's rehearsing all of these things. He's, he's going through all these things in his mind. He knew the faithfulness of God, and he believed in the power of God. When we're afraid, we need to remember these truths. And then, if we will do that, we'll be able to do as Habakkuk did, and we will be able to have faith to embrace the future. 
What's, what is it that makes this chapter, really the final verses particularly, so forceful? Well, for me, it's the way that, that Habakkuk faces all of what's coming and embraces all of it. And, you know, he embraces all of this. He can imagine... You know the the magn- he knows the magnitude of it. He knows. I mean, there's reason to be afraid here. Yet he still he accepts it and he overcomes, and he does it in the knowledge of who his savior is. Yeah, I, I'm going to introduce a word. I don't I don't think I made it up, but it's not a real word either. So I'm doing. I'm making. I know I make up words from time to time. I'm doing this one on purpose. Supposings. Maybe I didn't, if, you, if I didn't make up that word, come tell me later, and I'll give credit where credit's due. But supposings, this is, this is what Habakkuk goes through here. And this will make sense in a minute. We deal with supposings all the time. They're everywhere. And we have them in our minds quite frequently. You know, a lot of people would just say, remember the responses to fears, just push them out of your mind, right? Just ignore them, block it all out. And that's good advice from a worldly standpoint. It's better than worrying, actually. You know, I've met people that have the ability just to shut it off and they don't have to worry about it. But I'm a worrier, as I've said, so I, you know, I, I can't just do that. So there's, there's advice that would say just block it out. And, and again, that's better than worrying. But when you're faced with situations, you're faced with these supposings, We have a choice to make. When the supposings came to Habakkuk's door, he didn't just block them all out. He dealt with them. Let's let's look at it. Let's just he gives us a list of his supposings. You know, the what ifs. That's what this is. What if this happens? What if that happens? That's worry. You know, this and there's a good chance that they may happen. In verse 17, we see Habakkuk's list here. Suppose the fig tree doesn't blossom. Suppose there are no grapes on the vines. Suppose the olive crop fails. Suppose the fields produce no food. Suppose there are no sheep in the pen. Suppose there are no cattle in the stalls. And there's a good chance that all those things came true. But we have our own supposings as well, don't we? Suppose my health fails. Suppose my kids rebel. Suppose I'm not as good of a parent as I should be. Is probably most likely true. <laughs> Suppose I fail the big test. Suppose I don't get into the college that I want. Suppose I lose my job or I can't pay my bills, can't take care of my family. Suppose tragedy strikes my life. The list on and on and on. What if this? What if that? But here's the deal. While we can't become obsessed with that, it's best to get it out in the presence of God because he knows what's going on in your mind anyway. And that is exactly what Habakkuk does. He doesn't just shove it out of his mind. He's honest with God. Lord, here's what I'm afraid of. And this could happen. That could happen. That could happen. You can't live there. You'll be consumed. But, but why not just be honest with God about what you're afraid of? Just like Habakkuk does. He's honest. He gets it out there. Even if all those things happen, though, he knows that it could and most likely did. But Habakkuk knows that God, even if 
all of my supposings come about, God knows. He knew that that was going to happen. And because of everything we've talked about, about his power, his provision, his protection, his fighting for his people, even if the worst case scenario plays out, God is still in complete control. And he was not surprised by that. He knew it was going to happen. He knew what we were going to need, and he is faithful if we trust him and if we continue to obey him. He is faithful to supply what we need to endure that situation. He goes through, Habakkuk goes through this whole list, right? You know, what if this happens? What if that happens? But don't miss verse 18. Even if all of those things happen, which they very likely could, I will still celebrate in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. God is my strength. The Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like those of a deer and enables me to walk on mountain heights. Even if the worst happens, I'm still going to praise God. Even if all of my supposings come true, I will still celebrate in the Lord because of the promise of salvation and provision and ultimate deliverance that he will give all of us on the day of his return, or if he calls us home before that. We still have reason to celebrate. He will make me walk on mountain heights. Speaking of mountain heights, uh, Mount Everest is the most famous mountain that, that in the world. I mean, it's, it's, people attempt to climb it every year. It, it's, it's one of the tallest, 29,035 feet. It's called the rooftop of the world. And no mountain in the world, world has more allure to mountain climbers than Mount Everest. It is, I mean, it's, it's many people's goals, not mine, but many people's goal to climb to Mount Everest. Somewhere around 4,000 plus, more than that now, have made it to the summit. And, and that's, you know, a lot of people climb Mount Everest, but the question is, did you make it to the summit? Did you make it all the way? That's the question. And, that's, and, and somewhere around 200 people have died trying to accomplish this feat. And, and I didn't know this. More than 200 people have died. There's about 200 of them still left on that mountain because you can't get them down once they're there. So that's how important this is to some people. They're willing to give their lives to accomplish this task or willing to risk at least giving their lives. It's an incredible task. There's a story in the New York Daily News a few years ago. A 24-year-old law student from Israel named, named Nadav had a goal. He wanted to be the youngest Jewish person to reach the, the, the peak, to reach the summit. His goal was to be the youngest Israelite to ever get to the, the peak of Mount Everest. He planned, he trained for two years to accomplish this. Intense training, hardcore training goes into this. You can't just get up one day and decide to climb. It takes a lot of training, outdoors training, stamina, I mean, all, all of these things, equipment that you need. You know, there wasn't a week that went by over these two years that he wasn't planning or training for this. I mean, this was a lifetime goal of his. The expense of someone climbing to the top of Everest is going to be anywhere from sixty dollars to $100,000 when all is said and done. This is commitment. This is the commitment that Nadav made. I mean, he was, he was this was his goal. So he... He, he does this hardcore training. He climbs some other mountains to prepare, to kind of build up to it. So he's doing this training. He goes through all of the expense. And all of that expense, he came to where he was within 900 feet of reaching his goal. 
but something stopped him. He gets to this point. There's something like 200 people in his group. It gets really, you can look at pictures, it gets really crowded at, at the summit, people coming and going, and it can be very dangerous. And there's only a certain, there are only certain times a year you can do it. So he gets to this peak. You can only spend so much time up there, and the weather was turning. It was about to get bad, and he looks over, and he sees a lump of, of, of what looks like a human in the snow. He sees people walking by this lump in the snow. People who were either exhausted or too focused on getting to the top, but he recognizes this lump of snow. It was a friend of his. He, he gets a little closer. He sees that this is a friend. They, and listen, they hadn't known each other very long, but they had been in this group together. They had, they had had dinner. They had camped together. They had gotten to know each other. And this lump of snow and, that he finds on this, on this mountain is an American named Aiden Ermick from New York City. He was a 46-year-old guy. So let, think about it. His goal, he's trained for two years, $6,200,000. He's done all these things to prepare for this. He's 900 feet from reaching his goal and he has a decision to make nobody else is helping and this american he's he he has no energy he's exhausted he's running out of oxygen he's not going to be able to make it down on his own he's going to be the he's going to be the next person who stays on that mountain forever but nadav makes the decision that human life is more important than his goal and not not only does he go to this american's defense he gets somebody to help him because you know Aiden can't make it on his own he gets somebody to help him get him on his back and he travels all the way back down to the next safe place with Aiden on his back and it takes them I want to remember this because if I if I can find it uh, they 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 go down I think it was nine hours nine hours he carried Aiden on his back down that mountain, and here they are in a picture. They both suffered severe frostbite. Both were, had incredible, you know, recoveries as a result of this. He gave up his dream, but here's what Nadav ben Yehuda says. He says, a person's life is more valuable than anything. You should never leave a friend in the field. That's what drove him. 900 feet, all that training, all that money, all that sacrifice, 900 feet. And when I, when I read that story, I immediately thought about the rescue story of Jesus Christ for his people. How he could have left us here, right? He, I mean, we deserved it. You know, he, he was in heaven. He left the glories of heaven. He could have left us. Nadav could have reached his dream. He could have gotten to the top of the mountain. He could have stood on top of the world, but he gave it up to save a friend. Now think just a minute about what Jesus gave up to save us. He gave up the glories of heaven for the humility of the manger, right? He gave up the riches of heaven for a life of poverty. He didn't even have a place to lay his head. He gave up the comfort of the throne for the agony of the cross, to save his children. And on that cross, he gave up intimacy with the Father so that you and I could have a relationship with our Creator. Think about what he gave up. He gave up his life so that you and I could be saved. And praise God, he gave up his place in the grave so that you and I could have victory over death. Think about the rescue story. 
Do you believe a God willing to do that can protect you from whatever comes? Willing to do all that? I do. Whatever comes, God's big enough, he's powerful enough, and he's got a track record of doing it, of faithfulness. If we trust in him, if we depend on him, if we continue to persevere in faithfulness, God will provide. And that gives me joy. It gives me joy to know that the God that I serve is capable and willing of taking care of his people. And the joy of the Lord is my strength. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the many examples that we have. As we read through Habakkuk and we're reminded of all of these examples of your faithfulness, as we read through your word and see how you've proven faithful time and time and time again, what a comfort it is to know that you are truly faithful. But Lord, we have examples in our own lives. Those of us who know you, we've seen you come through. We've, we've experienced at times when there seemed like there was no hope, we've experienced your faithfulness. We've seen it in our lives. We've seen it in your church. And Lord, we know that if we are yours, if we are truly yours, that nothing in this world can harm us from an eternal perspective. And Lord, in those times where we're afraid and there's uncertainty, I pray that we would just be comforted in who you are and what we know about you as being the one true God who has promised to save and secure his people. Lord, may we look to you. If there's someone here today or at home who's never accepted that gift of salvation, I pray that they would look to you right now for the first time and accept the gift of salvation that's only available through Jesus, your death, your burial, your resurrection, that we have to admit that we have all sinned and fallen short of your glory and invite you into our lives and receive the forgiveness that only you can give. But for those of us that know you, I pray that we would just rehearse the moments of faithfulness that we know about in your word. The, the, rehearse the moments of faithfulness that we've experienced in our relationship with you. That we would rest in the promise that you give us that you will never leave us or forsake us. And that one day you will return to bring us all home to be with you. Where there is no suffering, there are no fears, there's no sickness, no death or anything else that would, would, would cause us to be troubled or worried. But we thank you for your promises. We thank you for your provisions to speak to our hearts and help us respond. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand for our time of invitation?